Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Everyday Theology, where we don't tell you what to believe or why to believe it, but rather explore our Christian beliefs and why they matter for us in relation to God, to creation, and to others. My name is Aaron Ross. Welcome back to Everyday Theology. Today, I have a special guest, um, his name is Marty Solomon. Actually, we just met, so this is this is new for me. It's going to be exciting for me. But Marty is a theologian, the president and director of Discipleship for Impact Campus Ministries, and the creator and executive producer of the Bema Podcast. He and his wife Rebecca live in Cincinnati with their two children, as well. Um, I didn't realize this that we don't live too far from each other. Although you've got a much more fun city than I do. I well, yeah, we've been, we, you know, we've only been here since June of 20 and we've enjoyed it. It's been, we enjoy it. The city has to offer. We've been rural Idaho kids our whole lives. So this oh. is a new thing for us. Well, I'm up in uh, Ashland, so it's a little bit, you know, North, but you know, if you're ever in Columbus, let me know. We can, uh, we can try <laughs> to grab a cup of coffee in Columbus. You got it. Deal. Um, Marty, uh, I'm glad to have you here. Maybe if you can just give your, you know, what, my listeners know a little bit more about you other than kind of, you know, the blurb that I read here. Who are you? Why are you interested in the conversation that we're going to have today about your book and anything else you'd like to share? Yep. So I, yeah, I'm the, I'm the president of Impact Campus Ministry. has been doing campus ministry for um, starting to look towards 15 years, starting to turn that corner. Um, passed at a church for almost a decade before that. And was always raised in the church, always been one of those evangelical fundamentalist kids. Went through my own phase of, it was kind of in, in the middle of my Bible college undergraduate education when I went through what the kids would call deconstruction, right? Right now, we were calling it something else back then, but same idea, kind of unpacking all of those things in my own faith. Um, learned through some great mentors how to read the Bible through a new lens. I have my own Jewish heritage. I was raised in an evangelical world that didn't see any relevance to that, which is fine. Um, but I think there was even a personal element to that that made it unique for me and my family as we started to read the Bible through a more historical, contextual lens. Mm -hmm. And just wanted to give that away. I, I got into campus ministry to try to find a context where you could teach students how to read the Bible with that awareness in a way that made it super relevant and made a difference. And, and that, I mean, we really, I really have found, um, I just feel like I'm, I'm in a wheelhouse in this world of working with young adults and, and, and keeping the Bible in, in the center of the table. And, and that's, yeah. that's kind of been who I am and where we've been. That's great. That's, in, you know, it's, it's interesting, uh, you know, hesitant to ask because I think sometimes people don't like to say anymore, but where, where did you go for your undergrad? I was at Boise Bible College. Yep. Small okay. little, 
small little place in southern Idaho. I was going to go a lot of other places, <laughs> and that's the one that Jesus said, over here, sir. So I, I, it worked out. I, sometimes I think the only reason that God called me there was to give me my wife, and that would be that would be enough. Like, the, the education was fine. I'm glad for my time there, but I think my wife would have been reason enough for me to be there for four years. Worked yeah. out okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I ask mainly because it's it's such a you know I, my listeners know kind of my story is a bit there too, where my uncalled deconstruction started in undergrad at my what was a Bible college that turned into a university, and a lot of it around similar questions about the actual context of Scripture that was not necessarily given or understood, or maybe even at times worse ignored. Um, yeah. So. You know, today we're talking about this book that you are releasing called Asking Better Questions of the Bible. Um, The hermeneutic professor in me is jumping up and down because when I teach hermeneutics, I often use this really bad scene, I guess. I mean, I guess it's a good scene for this purpose, but bad scene from iRobot, if you remember that Will Smith. uh, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. And, and there's that there's that part where you know this like holographic, terrible, terrible. You go back and look at it now. You're like, it does not age well. But this little <laughs> holograph of like the the professor guy, you know, pops up and he starts asking questions and he starts answering. You know, I you know I don't have questions. I don't have a response for that question. I can only answer the questions I'm pre-programmed to respond to. Yep. And I often yep. would talk to my hermeneutic students and say, you can't treat scripture like this end all be all, it can answer every single one of your questions because it only has the answers to the things that it was meant to answer. Um, And that is a very large pool, but it's not everything, right? Right. And I think even to the title of your book, Asking Better Questions of the Bible kind of speaks to that. We've got to know the right questions or good questions to ask it. So I'm going to start here and just say, why did you feel the need to write this? And then opposite, I mean, not opposite, but kind of next to that is what do you feel that this is bringing in kind of your work that might be unique for a population of people? Yeah. Um, I mean, my whole life, I love to sit in this space of helping. I'm not the one in charge of better readings of the Bible, but if I can help add voices and part of the conversation that leads us to better readings of the Bible, that's my greatest passion because watching bad readings of the Bible and how those are used and leveraged or weaponized um, obviously frustrates me as much as any other person. So I, I've always wanted to just be a part of that larger conversation. So that's why I wanted to write this book. I loved what, like your illustration. I mean, that's exactly it. I have, I have a friend that used to always say, when we ask questions, the Bible isn't asking, we always get the wrong answers. So right. to write a resource or a tool that allows us to meet the Bible on its terms and just be aware that there are terms and that I need to be thinking and considering that before I engage in the work of exegesis um, is why I, why I wrote the book. I think um, one of the things that it brings, uh, so we do this thing called the podcast. I don't know how much longer podcasts will be around. doesn't look like the sun is setting yet, but <laughs> like I, I, I am trying to just toy with, getting resources out there that are helpful and watching the ways where they're most helpful. I know there are people that are like, I want to do podcasts. I can't do podcasts. It's not my thing. And I've had lots of people already in a week of it being out saying, 
This is super helpful. I had a hard time keeping up with your podcast, but what you've done is you've put it in a book and, and thank you for that. And if it's a part of the journey of figuring out which resources are the most helpful for people in the most places, I'm all in for that. So, yeah, I love it. So I guess maybe we'll, we'll start from here for my listeners. You know, we've had, I've had quite a few podcasts with different biblical scholars and, and we've talked quite a bit at different times about how or why, or in what way do we approach scripture, especially particularities um, of different genres and the like. But for you, I think one of the questions I want to ask, because even your second chapter is you, you kind of titled it playing with both hands and talking about something that isn't, in my opinion, often talked so much about when we uh, read texts on hermeneutics or we read texts on interpretation, oftentimes it's, okay, here is our approach, whether it's historical critical or any of the many that I'm not even going to get into and confuse people with, but um, you're taking a different and you're saying, hey, we've got to remember that there's this other tradition, this other larger tradition, this Eastern kind of thinking, this Easter way of thinking that is vastly different than a Western way of thinking. Maybe if you can start there, what, what do you what do you mean when you say playing with both hands for my listeners? And what is being brought to the table when we listen to both those different ways of thinking? Yeah, so we start by trying to bring an awareness to the fact that there are different and maybe two different worlds is perhaps the danger is we've oversimplified it. But generally speaking, right. we do have this Eastern and Western world. We do have a world that likes to move everything into the abstract. That's where we come from. We like that. We like definitions. We like to systematize theology. We like to do what we, we talk about God as omniscient and omnipotent. And we have, you know, we talk about justification, but the, the world of the Bible is a more Eastern world that talks about God being a fortress. The word omnipresent doesn't show up. Instead, we get right. a fortress or a rock or because these images have the same ability to communicate depth, but in a different way. Um, so just understand it. There are two worlds to begin with. And then what we do in the book is there's this metaphor that I love about playing the piano, where if you've ever played the piano, you know that in your left hand, you're playing the bass chords. In your right hand, you're largely playing the melody. And when you put the two hands together, you get this beautiful song. But if you can imagine playing a song without the right hand at all, all you're doing is playing the bass chords. And unless you have insider information, you probably don't even recognize the song. If you right. had the right hand, you'd probably recognize the song. You put them both together and you get something beautiful. The danger for me is that I feel like when all we do is engage the scripture from a Western perspective, asking abstract questions and creating abstract theology, I wonder if at times we even recognize the biblical song for what it is, if we're even hearing the melody, or if we're just getting really, 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 really good at playing the bass chords. But there's actually something essential that we're we're missing. And so that's the idea behind that illustration of playing with both hands, making sure that in our biblical study, our interpretation, our exegesis, our hermeneutics, that we are making sure we have an awareness of not just both hands, but even what hand really is the hand that's defining the song and giving it its yeah. real true identity. Yeah, so maybe let's go down that path a little bit and in, in some kind of examples here. If, you know, it's, it's really hard for those who have not considered or pondered that there are these different ways of thinking uh, to immediately go, aha, I understand, you know, I'm going to do that. So in some sense, what what are some tools or ways that people can think about, okay, if I'm approaching scripture and 
what what do how do I approach it differently than the Western thinking that I'm ingrained in? That mm-hmm. that's all I know. How do I actually start to think about something with you know the right hand? What the right hand is doing. Yep. And in a lot of ways, it's a long journey. It's like learning a new language. Like you have to start by learning some basic vocabulary and then, you, and then you're eventually going to get really good at grammar and syntax. And eventually you're going to become fluent. It's just, it is like this longer journey of just learning some basics. And so with, that's what we really try to do in the book is go through a whole toolbox of when you're in this portion of the biblical library, think about literary devices. When you're in this portion of the biblical library, understand that wisdom is designed to almost be counterintuitive or throw you off. When you're in the Gospels, realize that there's an agenda. Every genre of the biblical library having its own characteristics and remembering where you're at when you're in that biblical library. But say say an example would be numbers, like pretty straightforward. And it, it, Jewish numerology can get real messy real quickly. But mm-hmm. um, we're used to reading the story of the 5, 000, feeding of the 5,000. Fantastic. We got 5,000 people. There's five loaves, two fish. There's 12 baskets full, basketfuls left over. We love to talk about the miracle that happened. We love to talk about the story again in the abstract, uh, making sure that there's a historicity element to it. But oftentimes what we miss is this Eastern relationship with numbers. There's five loaves, that's books of Moses. There's two fish, that's tablets of Moses. There's 12 basketfuls for the 12 tribes. Jesus is in the Jewish area of the triangle. Jesus is making a statement of, When you get the people of the Torah, 5,000, when you get the people of the Torah together and you allow me to engage the law, there's enough for all of God's people. And you're like, oh, I mean, that's a totally different way of reading that story. A lot of people are understandably skeptical. We then talk about the 4,000. That happened on the other side of the lake in the Decapolis. So completely Greek. 4,000 is the number of the four corners of the compass for Gentiles. There's seven loaves of bread and seven baskets fulls because there were seven nations in the land of Canaan. And right about the time you're like, all right, I ain't buying this. Jesus gets in the boat. His disciples argue about lunch and Jesus reviews what content? The numbers. (laughs) He sits there and says, how many baskets? How many people? How many loaves? How many fish? How many baskets on this side? He goes over the numbers because the numbers the entire time were his actual point for his disciples. And it's actually sitting there right in the text in front of us. But we just relate to it as Westerners engaging history. And it just impacts the way that we read the story. And yet, I wonder if we are actually making the irony be being that we make the exact same mistake the disciples do and miss the entire point that Jesus is getting at when he drives at the numbers. Right. Yeah. You know, maybe call me one of those skeptics, right? And not because I'm very often skeptical, just more because that's interesting. And I want to ponder that for some time and and maybe even read further into it. But but at the same time, I can say, you know, I, I know of other places, right? You, you talk about Acts and this sure. 3,000, yep. right? The 3,000 are saved in comparison to yep. New Exodus in which 3,000 are killed. And, and there's so much parallel there that, you know, I don't have a, I think that's, I think to your point, right? We've got to start pondering these kind of yes. readings to recognize that it isn't this, uh, yeah, this it isn't this, I'm making a theology out of the cold, hard fact mm-hmm. of it, uh, if that's even what it's trying to do, right? Which is, I think we're right. saying it's not trying to do. Because um, it, it's, it's, it's imperative, right? I think maybe to, to go back to that Acts example, just to maybe push this forward a little bit is, is 
the fact that in Acts, right, we get this 3000 number uh, of, of those who are saved after this, uh, this miraculous event in the, the first couple chapters of Acts. And just recently, I'm, I'm, you know, in a Facebook group of ministers and someone was talking about church growth and then talking about how, you know, we, we shouldn't be focused on, on just numbers and church growth. And someone said, well, in the book of Acts, they definitely were, they, you know, had salvations and they counted and, and, and I go, Ooh, right. That's what happens when we do read it very much like a, we think that somehow in this like miraculous moment in the book of Acts, uh, where the spirit falls in these people that they're out here counting hands and taking cards and getting names and, you know what I mean? Yeah. Contact information. And we've created some kind of ecclesiology out of that very Western, well, this is exactly what happened. So that's how we should do it, which then we don't necessarily continue on with at the end of Acts chapter two or four and doing it the same way they do it in other places, right? right? So I, I think that's, I think that's really interesting. Again, that's something I want to ponder and, and think more about. Um, how, how, how do you get someone to, in some sense, break out of that mentality, right? I mean, other than yep. just learning the tools, which is definitely necessary, you know, it, it's a hard pill to swallow. I think sometimes when we're saying there's a different approach yep. and some people get really nervous about going, I, I can't do a different approach because I've got it right. And if I, if you make me question this, then I'm, yep. you know, so what would you say to the, that kind of group of people? Yeah. I mean, for, for in large part, like if, if people have something that's working for them, like if, if they do have the answer, and I don't mean that in a patronizing or passive aggressive way, but I mean, this larger conversation is usually for folks that are like, man, I've got some questions. I got some problems. I've got some inconsistencies. I've got some, like, they're ready to start asking those questions. I think I've, I've become far less um, motivated and interested and compelled in trying to convince people to come over here because there's so many people that are like, I need this to make more sense. And the helpful way to get into that conversation for me is that foundational question of authorial intent, communicative, mm -hmm. communicative intent, to talk, yeah. to talk about just the basic, every other question is going to be really built off of one basic hermeneutical question. What did the author mean when they wrote this? And what did the audience hear when they heard it? Like when you're ready to start asking, a like building from that point up, if we think the inspired conversation is the one that happened between author and audience in the Bible, then we should be able to build from that ground floor up. And that's where all these other questions, that's where we could start to go, okay, so is there anything going on in the numbers in those stories in the Gospels? Or what is taking place in the story of Pentecost and Acts? Because I'm asking the, what is what did Luke understand when he wrote that story? And what did the audience, did the audience understand that Luke was taking a tally? Right. 3,000 right. people? Or does Luke yeah. and his audience assume he's making a callback a reference to an earlier story. What's the context? Ask us, and that's a that's a really basic question that doesn't require mountains and mountains of nuancing. Like it's just let's start here, and from there, I'm going to learn how to ask more and more layers of questions that help yeah. me have a better conversation. Yeah, I love that because it, it it's making things. I mean, if you ever go through a hermeneutics class, right, and you maybe go through the historical critical method of hermeneutics. I mean, that's, that's one of the basic first questions, right? Is authorial yep. intent. 
And it is a, I don't want to say it is is a safe space, right? It's a safe space to say, is that really what the author was trying to communicate? Opens up to, you don't have to now go to a commentary and start to read all the minutia of this one word and the different ways it can be used. And well, you know, the, uh, you talk about, we were talking about Hebrew and Greek. I'm going to have to use Greek, right? But the Pistis Christu debate and how everyone's going to talk about, is it faith in faith of Christ and how do we deal with it? That's that's not the, I think what you're asking when you're saying we're asking better questions, right? We're actually starting from a much different spot of just saying, how did the author, what did the author mean when they said it as best we can probably grasp? And I, you know, I think of someone like James Dunn, who actually focuses a bit more on the secondary question of what did the audience receive from that? What would it have meant to them and their understanding of the, the passage really opens us up to put ourselves into a different space. Absolutely. And you're quoting, you're quoting great people there. James Dunn, I mean, being a great example, especially in the New Testament of how this ends up fleshing itself out, because I mean, that, I mean, that, that is the essential, that is the essential question. And, and, and when you talk about it from a distance, you're like, well, well, how could we, how could you not do that? <laughs> right. And right. then you realize, oh goodness, I don't, I, I don't know if our general posture in evangelical theology is to do it at all. Like, We've kind of used the we kind of use the Bible as a proof text for a pre-existing theological system, whichever one we adhere to and belong to, and then we kind of read the Bible with all those assumptions. We don't actually start there. We may get to it later in the process, but yeah, it's just it's super helpful when somebody says that. And you're like, oh, of course, and then you turn around, and you look, and you go, golly, I don't know if I'm actually asking that question when I start. Yeah, the exegetical process, and that's that's pretty key. I'm I'm thinking about, uh, and I don't know if if you, you run into these in certain circles, but there is a a method, a Bible reading method that I've been uh, exposed to in the different circles that I've, whether it's taught or been in church wise. Have you ever heard of this like soap method of reading scripture? I wondered if you were headed to soap. I knew that's where oh. you're going. Perfect, right? Because soap is the perfect example of that, right? We say, how do yep. you not ask what the author meant or how the audience would have received it? But when we're teaching our churches, you know, and for those who aren't familiar with soap, right, it's scripture, right? So here's the passage or often just a couple verses or even just one. What's your observation about that, right? What's your application of that in your own life? And then pray about it. Right. Like it's like the last thing we actually invite God to do is to actually help us think about how do we think about it. Yeah. And then uh we just start praying about how God is going to apply that to our life in whatever way. But yep. we never ask. We never ask, well, what does this mean to the original yep. audience or the right? Yep, absolutely. So if that's if that's a problematic way, you know, and again, I, I actually, Marty, I really appreciate the fact that you talk about this in a way of saying something to that effect of if it works for you, if this method, if, if, and, and work, I guess, you know, we have to qualify in some ways. If you're loving God and loving people in really beautiful and healthy scriptural ways, then why am I going to destroy your world for a second to say, Hey, have you, that passage doesn't mean this doesn't work. Um, But I really appreciate that because it, it, it does something that's unique and, spaces that are quote unquote deconstructionist spaces, right? Uh, I had a podcast few back, I uh, had Brad Jerzak back on the podcast and we were talking oh, yeah. about his book on deconstruction and how we often, once we learn something like this, so like reading your text, right? Or reading an exegetical text, yeah. a hermeneutical text, sorry. We often want to now take what we've learned 
in our fundamentalist way and say, everyone has to do this. And if you're yep. not doing this, you're wrong. Right. So we just, yep. we switch our fundamentalism from one thing to the next, but it's really, really beneficial and beautiful when we have people in spaces that are saying, no, 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 no. Take a second. You work through this, understand it and help others who are ready to go through it. We're not out here going, I'm going to kick everyone's door in and say, welcome to deconstruction. Here we go. Right. Yep. Yeah. And, and it's helpful for me personally, because I'm not the expert. I don't got enough letters after my name. Uh, you know, if I was an expert, if I, if I, if I did have the corner of a conversation and can speak with that kind of authority, I don't know if it would change my posture, but I, I certainly don't. And I certainly can't speak with that kind of authority. So all I can do is tell people what have been, what's been helpful for me and if it's helpful for you. And it's kind of similar to sometimes I, in this whole conversation and some of these Q and A's that I have on when we're talking about the book, somebody will say, we'll, we'll start talking about questions and doubts. And at some point we say something like, listen, if your faith can't stand questions, like if it can't withstand the pressure of doubts and inquiry and wondering and asking what if, then our faith is not that great to begin with. Like if it can't right. withstand, but in the same I think that same reasoning extends beyond that. Like, if this is helpful, it's going to be helpful. I don't have to like force it or prove. If these tools are as helpful as we think they are, they're going to stand on their own and they're going to be helpful for people in the right space and in the right way. And that just releases all the pressure for me as a teacher, yeah. for me as a Bible student and a learner, because that tool is not, and I do that at the very end of the book. If that tool is not, that tool might be helpful for me later. Like maybe later I'll be like, oh, now I'm ready for that. Now I understand right, yeah. chiasmus. But right now, like, I don't care about chiasms. What are you talking about? Great. Right. Like, don't. I. You don't have to care about chiasms now. Only when it's helpful to really be able to dig into what the Bible's doing. And, and then it will be, it'll be the perfect time. And that's such a disarming approach. And in my view, kind of of how we approach the text, why we approach the text, what we ask of the text to, well, what we ask of God to do in us through the text, right? Is that it's not a, it has to be this way or it's wrong. Because yeah. I think that's what's gotten us in, in trouble to begin with, right? When we talk yeah. about reading of scripture, we often kind of have these spaces of people wanting to debate, you know, minutia because, well, particularly at lay level and, and church levels, right? Because if you don't have it right, you have it wrong. And if you have it wrong, you're screwed, right? Yep. Like it's kind of yep. a quick down the path, right? Yep. You either get it hundred percent correct or you're done for. What you're saying is that's not right. Yep. Right. And helping people kind of go through that path. So what, so again, I'm asking kind of what you would say to people to get people more interested in your book, to read it. But what would you say to people then who are in that space of, of going, I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know what I want to do yet with scripture or asking questions, but I'm, I'm, I'm curious, but I don't know where to start in a way that feels safe or do I need to feel safe? Right. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and so we start our conversation at the very beginning of the book and and my assurance of two things, the person of Jesus. And I, mean, I talk about the inspiration and the authority of the scripture, but it's also so much wider and deeper than that. Like the brilliance and the beauty. Yeah. Like part of the tragedy is that we've somehow mastered the Bible and made it boring. 
not just boring, <laughs> yeah. but irrelevant. And, and right. the Bible is like this endless well of the more you know, the more you don't know. And like, it's the most compelling, crazy, inspiring, provocative, transforming thing that I've ever given my life to as far as anything outside of my relationship with Jesus. Jesus and the Bible are just two of the most. So if if we have any confidence in that, um, then then all of these all of these questions, all of these, I don't know how'd you phrase it. I don't know where to start. I don't know what to think. Well, let's put one foot on Jesus, one foot on the Bible, and let's just have fun seeing what what we can pull apart by asking some of these historical questions. And by the time we're done, I feel like it has invigorated. Like I'm like, okay. I I may know even less about what I think and where, <laughs> but I'm actually, I'm ready. Like I'm I'm not intimidated. I I'm excited. I'm yeah. expecting to find God. I don't think I have to have the answers or have a theology that perfectly encapsulates my position on all. I I'm the Bible is this thing I'm ready to look at, dive into, and darn it if it's not going to challenge me, provoke me and transform me and making, making me into something better, a better version of me. And I think that's what ultimately, I think what, what, what a lot of us are, are craving and want. Marty, you know, something you said there, we've, we've mastered it and it's become boring to us. I mean, that yeah. you couldn't have read my, um, well, what I thought I had mastered, you know, but yeah. read my mail more, even in terms of like being an undergrad growing up a pastor's kid, being in church every single day, literally every day, right? Yeah, those kind of things gave me the attitude of, I know this thing. And I could quote more than anyone else I knew. I, now I can't. It's funny. Like I, I, oof, I'm really yep. bad at it. But what I can say is, the more I thought I knew, the more it bored me. And as soon as I opened myself up to question some things that I thought I knew about it, all of a sudden the text became beautiful and alive. And I loved exploring it because I, I no longer said, I have it, right? This is, yep. I, I use the example all the time of George MacDonald and his book Lilith about this moment. And, and I'll just tell people to go read Lilith. It's a wild, crazy text from MacDonald. Um, but but there is something to what you're saying there to say, like, the more we think that we understand it, the the deader it becomes, but the more yeah. that we let it be what it is, the more beautiful and vibrant and even life transforming it can be, right? Yep. In In that vein of things, Marty, maybe give us, maybe give my listeners an example, maybe an example from you or from even from your writing of your text that you said, this was one of those moments uh, I mean, we kind of got one with the the numbers here of the feeding of the five and the four thousand. But what what are some other things that kind of woke you up to this reality that again prompted you to over time write a text to help others see that same thing? You know, I f I think the beginning of my journey uh, just happened to be the beginning of the Bible, and it's why we started our podcast journey where we did at Genesis chapter one because I think. Somebody, I mean, I was raised in fundamentalist evangelicalism, where the war was six-day literal creationism <laughs> versus a non-literal uh, theistic evolutionary reading. And, and so you're just like, this Western conversation was all about how creation happened. And Genesis 1 was kind of like 
orbiting around the how question. And then to have somebody reframe that and say, Genesis isn't about the how, it's about the who and the why. And this poem isn't about how creation happened. It's about who is this God and who are we and what is he up to in the world? Well, all of a sudden from the opening pages of the scripture, we have a completely different lesson. And if that's the case, what happens on the next page? Yeah. And what happens on, so that, you know, that episode one, episode zero and episode one of the podcast lesson for me, looking at Genesis one as a chiasm, realizing the whole story is an invitation to trust, to rest, to Shabbat, to recognize that it's God's good world and we're not in charge and we're not loved and valued because of what we produce, but because we're just a part of this Tove creation. I mean, that that was one of the most, that was one of the first things I can remember on this journey and one of the most paradigm shifting, hmm. reordering lessons. Because then we went to the next story and it was Adam and Eve. And it's like, well, wait a minute, is this also not about how? I started picking up like really quickly, the Western world makes every story about how, how it was created, how sin entered the world, how, and then yeah. to recognize, oh, from a Jewish perspective, this ancient Jewish story of Adam and Eve is about why we sin. Yeah. It's not that Adam and Eve happened. It's that Adam and Eve happens every day. Oh my goodness. That story just <laughs> right. burst forth with meaning and significance and things to tell me. And it's so dynamic and uh, yeah, those were, I mean, those opening chapters of the Bible all of a sudden reframed everything for me. And if that's true, it must be true for the other 65 books. And sure enough, it was. They were all different and unique, but what a wild journey. Yeah. And, and Marty, I, you know, I think in what you're saying, for some people to kind of recognize, right? Because again, there is that, that there's that lingering fear. Wait a second. If I if I take Genesis one and two and I start to change, is this about how creation happened, how long it took, right? The the questions yep. that we often focus, you know, am I going to going to stop loving Jesus, right? Like, right. am I going to not be a Christian? Yep. And I think that's a lot of the lingering fear. And, you know, I can't speak for you, but as I have had those moments in my own life about passages or ideas that I thought were quote unquote scriptural, the more I found myself loving Christ and, and being affirmed in my belief of him, not the opposite, which I think is often the kind of anti-intellectual or resistant of intellectualism approach to a lot of fundamentalism within learning, right? Yep. And there's still a lot of that in me. And and for me, that needed to be an objective conversation. Like, I didn't want to lose my objectivity or my commitment to the scripture. And so for me, that became a very objective, because yeah, I, I have those voices, those voices, I had those voices, I still do. You You hear the you know, the Ken Hams of the world that say, if you don't read the Bible as a six-day literal creation narrative, you can't, you can't be saved. Right. And you're like, right. Oh, okay. And, and so, and so then it becomes a very objective, are we going to let like a modern apologetic paradigm be, per how do we interpret what the inspired meaning of the Bible? So I'm doubling down on the inspiration of the text right. rather than rejecting the inspiration right. of the Bible. 
I'm going, okay, I want to have a higher view of the scripture, the highest view I can possibly have. So is a modern apologetics view, is a classical theology from the 1600s view, or do I need to go all the way back and go, what did the author who wrote Genesis mean to their audience when they wrote this? And to me, that objectively becomes like a no-brainer. That yeah. doesn't mean it is for everybody. But for me, that was because I didn't want to forsake objectivity for a new, you know, something else. I wanted to double down on objectivity going, wait a minute, is that the most logical way to read the Bible? And I very quickly went, I don't feel like that is because I can't see the author of Genesis trying to communicate. Yeah, I, I really feel like I'm forcing the Bible to meet me on my terms rather than meeting the Bible on its terms. So, yeah. And I think for for some who might fear like the rejection of tradition, I think Scott McKnight, and he kind of gives us something beautiful in, in one of his books, uh, talking about reading with tradition, is that we, we can also recognize that in the 1600s, Luther and Calvin are attempting that same thing to a degree to go back and say, okay, well, what did Paul actually say, right? And thus we get yep. a very classic, a, the more classic non-new perspective view of Paul, right today because they try to do the same thing to which then yep right and done and the lot they all said okay well I'm, i we want to go back and say again right and yep. the early church fathers they did the same thing they were pondering what did this mean at this time in this place yep. and we can read along with that tradition to find places in which hey maybe they did it well maybe they maybe they had too much of their cultural influence and and we're all in this conversation, right? If we yep. had to today have it 100% right, we're all 100% screwed. I mean, yep. that's that's the the end all be all of it, right? We we can we can promise ourselves one thing: 400 years from now, we're going to look like idiots. They're going to have dug up more <laughs> stuff out of the dirt. We're going to have learned new things, and we will look as dumb as people 400 years ago look today in some regards. It'll be the same for us. So there's no way that we have mastered it all. We are a part of this dynamic thing where we're trying to figure out how to steward and handle the scripture. And you're exactly right. Just like the reformers did, just like the early church fathers did, just, you know, it's it's the same thing we're invited to participate in. And anytime we think that it got frozen somewhere and the process is over and I don't have to ask those questions and engage it, we're in trouble. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And that's, oh, well, we could go down that path, but we probably shouldn't, right? <laughs> Marty, um, you know, in my lackluster questioning of your text, you've had other conversations about this. So I'm going to ask you to ask a question about your text or about your process. What's some of the best questioning that you've had about the book or your writing or your process of it that you thought was a really helpful joiner for audiences? Um, well, one of the, I don't know if this is a good answer to your question or not, but one of the things that I, um, learned in the process was that that first book comes, if there's anybody out there that's thinking about writing, that first book comes, I was told in my original training and writing cohorts I took part in, your first book comes out super easy because um, it's it's the book that's been in you kind of your whole life, career, whatever. And this book really did. And I can promise you, if I write another one, if there's another book in my future, it is going to be 10 times as hard as this last book was because <laughs> I got away for essentially two weeks. I did one week away on a writing retreat, just did nothing but write, um, wrote the rough draft. Over the next few months, my publisher sent me revisions. I got away for one more week, 
made the revisions and that was pretty much it. We fine tuned it here and there over the next four or five months. But uh, that process was so much fun, by the way. And I love my publishing team. There were so many things that I was dreading because authors I talked to everywhere said, oh, you're going to hate the title. It's, it's like you 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 carried this baby to term and then somebody else gets to name it. Yeah. Um, you're going to hate the cover art. And so I was just dreading the whole thing. And every door that we walked through, I was just so pleasantly surprised at how much my team at NavPress got me. They got the book. And it was just a joy. It was like, ah, oh, I do like that. That is good. You've made it better. <laughs> and um, it, so that that was part of, I think I learned as a type eight or uh, a driving um, control freak who struggles with narcissistic tendencies. I think I learned a ton about the value of a team of people and letting go. I mean, I'm get, as I'm getting older, I continue to learn that, but this just reinforced so many of those very practical lessons for me. Yeah. No, that's, that's wonderful to hear. Uh, one day I'll do that and I'll go through that fear myself. I'm sure. <laughs> that's right. Um, one of the things that you, you mentioned in the book is, and maybe this will the kind of where we'll spend the rest of our time together is this understanding of trying to read apocalyptic literature. And you, you use the phrase without losing our minds. Yep. Right. And yep. Um, I think that's even pertinent now because I think I just saw or my wife just sent me, um, I guess there's another Left Behind coming out. Um, yes. Yeah, I don't, I don't even know who's in it. And the, I mean, I she sent it to me as being like, oh, have you seen this? Like, this is going to be trash. And I I literally kind of like, I couldn't even read it because I'm like, I don't even want to know. <laughs> like, I, can't, <laughs> I can't let myself read that and be frustrated. But you know, oftentimes when we talk about apocalyptic literature, we do yeah. really end up losing our minds, whether it's in this kind of path of some kind of dispensational eschatology. How do we read this as a roadmap to or telling me, you know, am I going to be raptured? Am I not? I mean, and, and of course, apocalyptic is much greater than just revelation um, as a text. But but what what would you say to people who are saying, I want to be able to read these and allow myself to not lose my mind, but at the same time, not, you know, I'm not, and I'm not saying everyone has to give up that dispensational eschatology again, right. Right. but at the same time, how do we read it in kind of healthy ways that kind of will allow us to ebb and flow with, okay, are we talking about how this end thing is going to happen yep. or what does this mean and why? Yep. Yeah, I would definitely start by saying don't start there for sure. Uh, I don't think many people try <laughs> or do. I love the fact that it ended up being the last the last kind of content chapter of the book. There's one more that closes the book out, maybe a couple more actually, but um, the last real content examination chapter was on apocalyptic literature because by then it's just the same, like the, the reading it without losing our minds portion. It's just the same hermeneutic. There's nothing brand new. I don't have to. It's the same principles that we've just done for Paul's letters, for the Gospels, for prophets, for wisdom literature, for the history, for reading Torah. The same hermeneutic of what did the author mean when they wrote it and what did the audience hear when they heard it is it might be a little bit trickier and complex, but don't lose your mind because it's the exact same principle. We don't throw that principle in the garbage. We simply say we might have to do a little bit of extra work to figure out how apocalyptic literature functions and what it means to the audience 
And there's maybe a few extra tools we got to learn, but it's the exact same principles. And when you start applying it, you start going, oh, this, this, is, this book isn't crazy at all. This book actually makes a ton of sense. It's just, it's a new genre that maybe we're not as used to, but we live in a world of media. We live in a world of, 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 of genre-based art. We, we right. know when something, some new, I just went to the bookstore and saw a brand new genre of art that I've never even seen before and thought, well, so we're used, I think we're, I think we are better placed in our world to have this wrestling match than so many others. So I think it's wonderful. Yeah. I, again, I'll probably just ask an example of you, right? Where has this kind of affected you that you've been able to read without losing your mind? And uh, an example of how that little bit of extra work, maybe a lot of extra work, uh, affected a change in a different understanding of the text. Yeah. Um, I'll, I'll give an example that's not even in the book. Uh, I remember going to Turkey and studying this with Ray Vanderlaan. He did a whole tour on the context of Revelation. And I can remember being in Sardis. And all he did was tell the story, the historical story of the context of Sardis and what happened and how Sardis was um, this impenetrable fortress that nobody could take and conquer. And yet it was conquered twice at nightfall while everybody slept. And then you read the letter to Sardis and it's like, wake up and strengthen your defenses. And I realized, oh my goodness, everybody that read this letter completely understood what was being said. And when I'm not trying to figure out the future, I, I can immediately move towards application. I can immediately move towards Oh, so if that's what the audience understood, when they, if they weren't wondering about the future, they were like catching the almost tongue-in-cheek, clever, subversive writing of John. Well, now I get to step back and go, that principle absolutely applies to my life. I can take that and apply that immediately, and I don't have to worry about what's happening with Russia and North Korea. That really has nothing to do with the wrestling match God's inviting me to engage in as I read this letter. Hmm. So that yeah. was one of my favorite examples because it was just so clear. As I stood in Sardis, I was like, oh, my goodness, this letter is not complicated. It's not tricky. This is straightforward. Unbelievable. Yeah, I love that thing about those those letters, right? I mean, later to see is often kind of picked up as one of those, yep. right, with this hot yep. and cold. And we actually, I think there are times that we try to over-theologize what's being said. Oh, yes. Right? Rather than recognizing, you know, and there's a lot of debate still about whether this is the actual case or not, but, you know, hot and cold is actually referencing their water sources and the fact that they only had lukewarm water and they hated it and it wasn't good for anything and yada yep. yada. Like, instead of actually just reading it as like, no, he's literally talking about their water and how they hate it. And that's the analogy for yep. us. Uh, we try to over-spiritualize it and in doing so create uh, a really odd, really odd theology that says you can be a great on fire Christian or a dirty sinner and God's happy both ways. <laughs> and right, I go, right. I don't think that's the case. Right. Right? Like, yep. I don't think that's the character and nature of God. Yeah. Um, Marty, before I let you go, you know, it's been a great conversation. I think there are some people who might say, you know, this has been a great conversation, but maybe I'm already there or maybe I'm not ready. But who would you say like, you know, if you're saying, here's the people who this book was really written for, who are those that you would say, this is, this book is for you. And if you're interested, I hope it's helpful. Anybody that 
has any sense of curiosity, which is where I feel like if there is a next book and my publisher is interested, that's where I'd like to go next is talking about curiosity. Like if you're mm. curious at all, it, whether that's doubts about the faith or how the Bible functions, whether that's curious as if like not doubts, but like, I feel like I feel unequipped. I want more tools, whether it's, I'm just looking for the next thing that might anybody that's curious about the scriptures, believer, or unbeliever, anybody that's like, I'm, I have any interest in the Bible, probably not for the expert, like the real expert, probably. I don't know. I've had a lot of, I have a lot of friends that are the experts and they're like, I really appreciate how you package things and they find value in it. I don't know, but if, or, or people that are self self-proclaimed experts, probably not their book. <laughs> I don't think you're also going to feel beat up either. Um, so it'd be right. fun to give it a shot anyway, but anybody interested in the scriptures at all, I think the scriptures are a beautiful thing that connect me to the person of Jesus. I think Jesus chapter number one, I think Jesus is what matters. I think Jesus is the point. And I think the Bible helps get me there. Yeah. And that's why I'm passionate about it. I don't want to worship the Bible. Um, I worship Jesus, but man, is the Bible a cool way to get to Jesus? So anybody interested in the Bible, any, a, a little, a lot, confused, doubts, if it's Bible question mark, the answer for me is, <laughs> is yes. Oh, I love that. And I hope that, uh, you know, even from those stories that people are interested, right? Um, yep. You know, thinking about, you know, I, again, I, I use that same thing and in, in often in hermeneutics classes, the Genesis one and two, and have students sit down and say, just list out, if you were to say how, just list yeah. out the order of creation and how it happened, and then to match them up and then tell me which one's right. And, and it just is that first moment of going, wait a second, there's more to this story than how, because yep. they don't match, right? Yep. Like, oh, I love that. And I, and I'm, very excited. I'm thankful for your text. I think we need uh, more more passionate writing about how to ask good questions, how to how to approach the the scripture in health healthy and beautiful, faithful ways, uh, and less on here's the meaning of this passage. I hope you hope you enjoy. Right? Com right. Commentaries have their space in in exegetical yep. work, but in our church world, we we've been desperate for how how yep. to ask the right questions, yep. what they are, why, right? Yep. Marty, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's been a real pleasure. It's been nice meeting you again, if you're ever in Columbus uh, or somehow making your way to, to Cleveland, let me know. <laughs> We're on the way. Absolutely. I appreciate you making the time and the space today. And, and it was a great conversation. I had fun. Thanks, Marty. We'll talk soon. Yep.